The formula was as we've seen it so many times before with the Golden State Warriors in their big road wins. Look rough in the first half. Seems like they could be completely on the ropes. The home team outplays them but misses some chances to really get a substantial lead. And then the Warriors get back into it in the third quarter after heroics from Clay Thompson in the first half that helped to keep it close. And somehow they find a way to do it here with just a ton of injuries now on their ledger. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this game in particular, the Raptors looked, it looked like a continuation of what we saw in game one. In the first half, the Raptors defense was better. I thought that the Warriors were fortunate to only be behind by five points. And instead of, you know, as I think Draymond said this after the game, when, when they're only down five, they can come back quickly. And they absolutely did with that 18 to zero run at the start of the second half. The Raptors didn't score a single point until Fred Van Vliet made an open three with 6.20 remaining in the third quarter. And 18-0, you know, it was success from a lot of places. And I think one of the important things to talk about here in the early going is the Warriors' ball movement in this game, despite having limited personnel. But I think that helped create looks for the more limited parts of their personnel. Yeah, and it really, so much of it came down to the gravity of Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson before he suffered that potentially self-inflicted hamstring injury. And that let guys get so many rolls to the rim dunks the Warriors are a great passing team pretty much everyone other than Clay and, and even Clay had five assists himself in this game our excellent passers Demarcus Cousins added to that in particular with six assists of his own in 28 minutes and two key stats 22 of the Warriors 22 second half buckets were assisted and 16 of their 17 layups were assisted and they did that with only 13 fast break points this is a lot of half court stuff utilizing the gravity of curry and i thought it was big that whether it was the warriors finishing better getting used to toronto's length a little bit more toronto being a little bit more spread out than they were the warriors passing being a little bit better better making the extra pass just hitting a couple of shots from some of these role players quinn cook who played more helped space the floor out a lot he was three or five iguodala had two key jump shots to start the third as part of that run all those little things added up to toronto not bothering golden state nearly as much around the rim as they did in game one and while golden state as predicted actually had a worse offensive rating this game overall the offense looked better uh, especially in the first 18 minutes or so uh, of the second half when they really were pinging it around right and the warriors only had six turnovers in the second half compared to nine in the first half but also i just thought that they they were doing less self-inflicted wounds as well you know the raptors deserve a lot of credit that they were forcing turnovers as well but as you said more space to work with and a stat that i thought was pretty remarkable about this game the Warriors leading scorer in the second half of this game was Quinn Cook Quinn Cook had nine points made all three of his made three pointers in the game it was three of four from three in the second half and Iguodala had eight Draymond had eight Curry and Thompson each had seven and it really was a, a, an egalitarian point distribution and a lot of that was because they were cutting and rolling and so the, the opportunities were, were
were really spread out. And I think we should talk a little bit in this early going because it's going to get lost in the shuffle by based on everything that happened later on about Clay Thompson's first half. Yeah. Do you have the stats on that? I do. So Thompson, he played 19 and a half minutes of the of the first half of the 24 and he had 18 points seven to ten from the field three of three from three got four rebounds and only one of his five assists came in that first half but he was you know there were moments in this we've seen it in a few other warriors road games where early on he he's the only guy going you know steph got it he he found it late in the first half but early on clay was hitting some really tough shots he was taking a lot and then he and cousins had to to shoulder the burden for the second unit and so i thought that thompson it did enough to like to uh, uh, and a lot of it self-created more than usual and then the second half he actually I thought some of his best stuff was finishing around the basket he had this lefty finish over and around Kawhi Leonard off of a pass from Cousins and was he he was just huge on particularly on the offensive end but then his most important thing in the second half was the defensive shift that the Warriors went into and he became the primary defender on Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, I think uh, we really did bury the lead here to some extent on the Warriors defense. And it was a curious alignment to start the second half for Golden State, to be sure, with Draymond Green guarding Kyle Lowry. Generally, they don't want to have Draymond guarding someone who can shoot well. But with Iguodala kind of banged up, I remember he missed the last five minutes or so of the first half after running hard into a Marcus Gasol screen and just getting laid out. Uh, Iguodala was, uh, had a number of encounters with Gasol in the these first couple of games where he's trying to accentuate contact uh, and shed some light on Gasol's illegal screens he got called for two of those in the first few minutes uh, of the third but not not on Iguodala uh but that one was a totally legal screen but by the way it, Gasol just a, it was a very cagey screener late in possessions after setting the first screen in this game but putting Iguodala on Siakam where Clay Thompson had been trying to guard him at times in isolation and Siakam got past him Iguodala got a big stop forcing a jump ball on Siakam and Siakam overall struggled to 5 of 18 in this game after that crazy 32 points on 14 to 17 in game one so that was an interesting decision to change things up there they're going to always keep Steph Curry on Danny Green and the Raptors certainly had some chances uh, with shots that rimmed out some decent looking jumpers but they also had a bunch of turnovers uh, at the start uh, of that third quarter that fueled some of Golden State's uh, transition game I, I think also in terms of burying the lead we said that game one might have been Draymond Green's worst defensive game of the playoffs and he was right back at the level that we'd come to expect from him in these playoffs in game two whether it was stopping Siakam his defense on Kawhi Leonard late when Clay was out of the game and Clay had done a pretty good job on Leonard in the first 14 minutes or so of the half until he went out with the injury but Draymond got a couple of stops on Kawhi late in one-on-one defense they weren't able to screen to get him off of him and then there are a few times when Siakam tried to go up or on Draymond and Draymond was just much more aggressive he wasn't in foul trouble tonight which I think was big too that was a a big component of why Draymond couldn't stop Siakam in the third quarter of game one but he he was back to being that kind of player and it really was a defensive win or or maybe an offensive loss for the Raptors in this game much as you'd like to focus on the offense for the Warriors it was really doing much better defensively keeping them out of transition uh, and 
just overall better help defense uh, that was a big factor in addition to uh, Toronto really struggling on some of the open shots that they made I thought in the beginning of the game Siakam missing his first three Gasol missing his first three it's really amazing what just that first shot or two for role players like that will end up leading to uh, well, well, and on top of, on top of that so the Raptors in the second half they were six of 22 from three including one of five for Fred Van Vliet and credit to him he he, he kept firing and he should you know like those those were shots within the flow of the offense he really wasn't forcing it but yeah you saw a lot of that you know Lowry only he was one of three from three Kawhi Leonard had 18 points in the second half but most of that came from the free throw line he was nine of nine from the line including a technical which we might talk about later but his jump shot still wasn't really falling during that second half he had gotten into a little bit of a rhythm early on kind of shooting at the mesh point you know in particular on a screen like DeMarcus Cousins wasn't getting all the way out or there were a few plays at Bogut's expense but in the second half Leonard you know he he helped get, keep the offense moving because of the attention he was generating but it was it was a different kind of game for him and then when you compound that with all of their other role players just missing a bunch of shots other than Danny Green of all people it created a a challenging ecosystem for the Raptors to succeed and feedback loops positive feedback loops that allowed the Warriors to get better looks in transition they had a more efficient offense than the Raptors had to play more in the half court all right let's, let's do a quick read here tell you about a uh, liquid IV some of you may have heard about this big media game that Chris Haynes has organized on Tuesday I'm going to play in that and to make sure I am hydrated beforehand I'm going to have a, some liquid IV which hydrates you two to three times faster and more efficiently than water alone and with an added bonus of uh, some extra vitamins that you might need uh, as well you can find liquid IV everywhere even at Costco but uh, we prefer of course that you go to liquidiv.com and, and enter my promo code capspace instead to get 25% off when you buy it there's no artificial flavors or preservatives gluten-free dairy-free soy-free but really the best part about it is you can hydrate with far less liquid intake than if you're just having water alone and whether you're trying to drink something before you go to bed and you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night or if you just want something uh, that's more efficient so you can hydrate faster you can drink a lot less water mixed in with liquid iv and still get the same hydration benefits i like drinking it when i go up skiing if you're going to be at altitude good for being on a plane as well which is also really dehydrating they've got tsa friendly powder packets that are perfect for travel the way to get started with them liquid iv like iv fluid stuff curry actually had to get an iv fluid uh, during this game because he was under the weather but the idea is this is like an iv but it's in liquid form uh, that you can drink liquidiv.com enter my promo code capspace easy to remember because we talk about capspace all the time here once again liquidiv.com and use that capspace code to get 25 percent off and let them know that you came from us uh, any other big themes uh, that stuck out here to you i mean i guess we could just talk about how many injuries golden state actually suffered in this game yeah i mean i i think that's an important part not only of the, the story of this game but where the series goes from here and so Durant already out. Uh, my instinct is that he won't be back before game four, especially because the Warriors won this one. I think that they have a little bit more latitude now to sit him. Iguodala looked like he got hurt during during the game. He got that hard screen from Marcus Gasol, but he played. Yeah, he did have to go back to the locker room to get checked yeah. out. Maybe but but he 
still played 16-21 in the second half. So about yeah. what about what we would expect from him. But then Clay Thompson, it looks like the origin of his issues were a play where he got was taking a three, got bumped in the kind of the back and the butt by Danny Green, and it looked like at least in part it was to accentuate the contact. He kind of splayed his legs out, and that led to him landing awkwardly on both legs. And it looks like looked to us like the most severe issue was to his left knee, though it was technically described as a hamstring issue, and he did yeah. not return. Yeah, I think, I think it, it is pretty clearly the hamstring uh, as you go back and look at it because he just he landed awkwardly, and and that's that's a little bit different of a hamstring issue than you'll normally see when someone just tries to sprint for the ball. You know, this was more of a an acute injury mechanism here, and whether Clay was trying to accentuate the contact or whether he just was trying not to land where he thought Danny Green's feet uh, were going to be underneath him. Ironic that Clay should injure himself that way because he's well known for not doing anything to try to accentuate contact, and Steph Curry too, but he's done more of that, especially in this series. Uh, but Clay just trying to do what he could to, to get to the foul line on that and ended up just falling extremely awkwardly. And he was able to continue for three or four possessions after that. And then I don't know what he did to it. I think just kind of going to set a screen in transition when Quinn Cook hit that right wing three that then led to Steph Curry thinking it was a timeout, running down, doing that jump in the air and chest bump celebration with Quinn Cook. And then the ball was still in bounds and Serge Ibaka just went down and hit a three. Uh, but Clay, was telling everyone to follow Ibaka got that three in part because Clay just couldn't even get back and so he apparently seemed to aggravate it in some way a few possessions later and then you know he really was not able to walk that well to get off the floor had the ice on him later he's never had a hamstring issue before at least not in the NBA but I've got a high level of concern now uh, of course I had a high level of concern about Andre Guadalla and his hamstring which supposedly wasn't even his hamstring it was it was a calf after game one turned out he was maybe not fine but good enough in this game to contribute so uh, perhaps I'm a little bit too much of a naysayer here but when you suffer a muscle injury and you can't run and you have to ask for a foul to get out of the game and you can't come back into the game Clay has said afterwards that he expects to play on Wednesday and he played through that high ankle sprain last year he's played through a lot of ankle sprains a hamstring is just it's a little bit of a different animal and you can always you can re-injure it more if you can't move you can't move it's not the type of thing you can gut through just with a lower pain level necessarily or or just in terms of it's not a question of dealing with the pain it's a question of your muscle actually having the strength to do what it needs to and so I I have a lot of skepticism that he's going to be able to play on Wednesday despite what they've said that is a minor issue he is going to get an MRI but generally if you suffer a muscle injury that requires you to leave the game like that you're not back in the next game and maybe you're not back for a week or more but wait there's more also Kevon Looney didn't play in the second half. He had a rough fall, got bumped by Kawhi Leonard, and then hit the floor hard. Has a collarbone issue. He also expects to play in game three. I'll believe it when I see it. Collarbone issues can be tough. Can be yeah. tough. That one. That one. That, that's one where maybe he can kind of get shot up and, and yeah, maybe. be able to play. Yeah, we'll have to see. And so, yes, yeah, so you had all those different players that were out or limited. And one of the huge reasons that the Warriors were able to, to put it together was that after playing I believe it was 824 in game one DeMarcus Cousins not only started not only played well but played a lot of minutes 
I thought the move to start Cousins was the correct one by Kerr. It seemed like they weren't necessarily going in that direction. But after he said, hey, you know, we'll look at the tape and he can get some more minutes, I started to think that maybe they would go to him. And I thought that he had played reasonably well in game one. But we didn't, the beauty of starting him was you're at least giving him enough minutes that he can earn more minutes later in the game. And, you know, certainly his conditioning, he was huffing and puffing to be sure. By the end, I think he benefited from a lot of those uh, internal reviews down the end uh, for example and i mean i think it's really impressive that his passing has been as good as it has been after the long layoff i think in terms of feel that's something that can go away is his finishing not amazing i mean he's he's not really getting off the ground much he got blocked by gasol after making a great move to beat him uh, at the start of the third quarter and you know kerr said after the game we were playing playing him 20 he played 28 but we talked about when cousins signed well is there really that much point in him he's not going to close games they're going to close games with iguodala and he's a high usage guy and he's a floor raiser for a bad offense to give you kind of league average efficiency takes a lot of shots and so that's useful maybe on a second unit or on a a team like the Sacramento Kings for many years where they just didn't have anyone else and he could create a lot of shots but for this team he was taking shots out of the hands of of better players more efficient players well now all those guys are out (laughs) you know so having a floor raiser they really need that floor raised what did you think they got from him defensively in this one I thought he was active and while not perfect he wasn't out of position that often and I thought I thought he did a better job than Bogut overall you know he had had some trouble early on with Kawhi and also you know this is manually tracked but it's still a stat that I find interesting he led the game both teams in contest shots with 15 that included some generous contests on three-point shots but still I, I think that reflected his activity and he had a few you know nice plays around the rim where either in a help capacity or just he happened to be around there including his two credited block shots and so I, I thought he did well yeah he despite being kind of slow out in space I always thought his biggest weakness is transition defense and he does hurt their overall communication and just switchability matchup ability uh in transition situations but the Warriors transition was better tonight not unbelievable but definitely better so he didn't kill that and he's got good enough hands really long 7-5 wingspan and good enough timing he's got pretty decent help instincts with all the charges that he takes and so he's not going to sky and go up and get balls in the air but he can get his hands on on plays uh, around the rim i thought it was fascinating that the the raptors went at him i think i counted six times in the first four possessions because there were a few times where there was an offensive rebound or a reset or something they went at him with Kawhi leonard either on a handoff out of the corner or a high pick and roll i thought he did well enough you know leonard took a lot of shots early uh, but wasn't killing them and the the raptors struggled to score for the first five minutes or so of the game when he's in there so i think he held up well enough i think actually where he was probably most disappointing was on the defensive glass where the Raptors got a lot of offensive rebounds especially late I think part of that was due to his fatigue level but I was uh I was impressed by his effort and the Raptors though they have an efficient offense they don't have that spread pick and roll game that's gonna really put someone like Cousins into difficulty the way maybe a Houston would or they don't have just amazing shooters that he's got to get out on the floor and guard all the time and especially with Siakam and Gasol going 0 for 5 from downtown instead of four seven it, it made it easier for him as well so i thought he, he was an incredibly important piece and i thought it was being underrated how important it was that he was going to be back for this series given the issues uh, with kevin durant not being there and it looks like he's gonna be able to assert himself uh, as an important part of this team going forward in the series a couple other rotational changes that i thought were notable one 
Nick Nurse went away from Patrick McCaw. It was so weird that he played more minutes than Norm Powell in Game 1. McCaw did not play at all. And and if you did it in Game 1, why didn't you do it in Game 2? Yeah. (laughs) And and it's not like... I I thought Powell played played reasonably well, but it wasn't like, oh my god, you know, Norm Powell, this came out of nowhere. He he did such a good job. And instead, Powell played 21 minutes. McCaw didn't play at all. That was a little bit weird. Plus 13 for Powell. He played well. Yes, he was. Especially in the first half. Yeah, and he he had a a couple of... He had that, that surprising finish over Draymond. I mean that was a little bit a little bit of luck and a little bit of confidence but still a, a, an impressive finish and then a couple other changes for the Warriors one that really surprised me was that when Looney went down Cousins shouldered a pretty heavy burden I mean he played second unit minutes and closed the game in the fourth quarter which is a lot to ask of anybody and the guy who they turned to for the extra center minutes was not Jordan Bell who started game one but instead Andrew Bogut I thought that was, you know, it worked out better for Kerr. Like I, I, the way I referred to it in my piece was, it was a lower odds gamble that paid off, and that that might not be, you know, in the aggregate. I thought there were a lot of plays where he, you know, his limitations defensively were a big thing, but he finished, he got six points and a few other things, so it didn't look as bad, and that could end up being a bigger problem later in the series if Looney is unavailable or limited. That Kerr says, oh look, Bogut played well in this win, but Bell still makes more sense in those. I didn't think he did play particularly well. I mean, he oh, I agree with you. Made I, I, three alley oops, and he did nothing else good. He tried to take two charges on like perimeter players driving mm-hmm. to the rim. Like, didn't really seem well. To and his and his limited mobility there. was something the Raptors were able to attack more successfully than, let's say, Demarcus Cousins. Yeah, I, I thought that was true. And so, yeah, I would like to see them go to Bell. I mean, Bell, he can't. He's not tall enough to just stand right under the basket and bang him an alley oop. He's got to kind of get a little bit more of a running start there. But overall, I thought Bell actually played pretty well in game one. I, I didn't think he was uh, had any issues. So that might be something they could go back to and maybe do some more switching uh, as well. Though, if you're going to have Curry and Quinn Cook on the floor. what and, and that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. That was another big change that I thought was was important in this one. Is that the Warriors, beca- especially with Kevin Durant being out. But, I mean, we'll see what happens with Clay and everything else. They've been putting out this, second, this lineup at the end of the first and third quarters. That just doesn't have shooting outside of Steph Curry. It's, you know, Curry and Livingston and McKinney and Draymond Green and then it had been Looney instead it was Bogut and what Kerr did in the in the second half was he went to Cook in those minutes instead I mean also Cook you know making making three three pointers in the second half was important but just having another shooter out there made life easier on Curry I thought that was really important and then also in the second half after the the second unit had really kind of struggled in moments scoring and but really on both ends of the floor in the second quarter Andre Guadalla was also out there and Jerebko was out and Jerebko should not play a competitive minute in the series. He might have to out of necessity, given what keeps going on. But having more competent rotation rotation play from the perimeter, I thought made a big difference. Yeah, I mean, Jerebko doesn't really, on the boards, maybe he helps a little bit, but I'm not really sure why you would play him over Cook. I mean, Cook can, can at least stay in front of somebody and he's a, a more reliable shooter, can, can do some stuff off the dribble as well. And Kerr, in fact, did not go back to Jerebko in the second half. I thought he did well to instead wait to bring sean livingston in he brought cook in earlier to play with curry maybe you can get away with that more against the raptors with their two small guards and then went with iguodala to stabilize that second group with curry out of the game and and that seemed to work pretty well the raptors really were not able to cut into the warrior lead that much with that group out there um well i know there's one other tactical thing that you want to talk about from the toronto perspective and that is the box and one. Yeah, they they went to that coinciding with 
that huge scoreless stretch of over five minutes up until the Iguodala three, which we'll talk about at the very end of the game too. And I thought it caused Golden State a few problems, but going back and watching the tape, they got some pretty open looks. Like Cook got a wide open three. He got another foul line jumper that he'll usually make. Cousins got a drive and it took a great play from Leonard to, to force a jump ball on that. They had another play where, I mean, a box and one, as you guys probably all know from you know playing middle school basketball or whatever is one guy in this case fred van fleet guards steph curry and then the other guys stay in a loose box you know they can move around according to the configuration of the offense if you're just not guarding anyone um but the idea being to just take away steph curry but also avoid miscommunications that leave the basket open and that's what what the big problems were for them in the first 18 minutes of the second half we're giving up all these layups on, on system buckets or on plays where steph curry is setting a back screen that's one of the things they had the biggest trouble with was Steph Curry setting a back screen and they just didn't want to leave him and they were giving up dunks off of those I think he he had three plays in this game where they just didn't help off him when he set a back screen and the Warriors got a dunk so you take away that action to some degree but I didn't think it was necessarily a panacea for the Raptors and it only works with Klay Thompson off the floor if Kevin Durant or Klay Thompson is in the game you can't go to that because if you leave those guys open like you got to be on their body when they catch the ball because they've got such a quick release and they'll just shoot right over you if you're not right there or you can have that guy matched up against a guard too or that he can shoot right over so not having another spot up shooter other than curry and quinn cook is a guy who can at least be closed down because he's a, a shorter guy i think it was an interesting strategic decision it certainly worked better than the man-to-man was working so you give him credit there but i don't think it's going to be some insoluble problem uh for golden state especially because you can come up with three or four just set plays to run against it uh, that'll work uh, once uh, you're ready for it but it, it was an, an interesting strategy and with only Steph Curry in the game maybe we'll see the Raptors go to that at the end of the first and third quarters when it's the Curry and four guys who can't shoot alignment so it is a very unique circumstance in which you can go to it when it's curry and no other shooters on the floor but with draymond iguodala and cousins all not wanting to really take threes it's an alignment that can work and you avoid these miscommunications that end up leaving the basket open uh with the that alignment so credit to nick nurse for going to it i think it was a, a really interesting approach and one that fit the offensive personnel of the warriors quite well but i don't expect it to be something that we're just going to be talking about as like change the series that they're going to go to it all the time the rest of the way i'm guessing you don't want to go possession by possession down the stretch because i want to talk about a single thing and that is what i thought the single most important play of this game was on the completely bizarre circumstance that was the warriors final possession steph curry threw a a pass that was tailing to his left tailing towards Kawhi Leonard and somehow Sean Livingston grabbed that ball and I thought the catch was the most important part of the game because if Kawhi gets that ball instead of Sean Livingston the Raptors have a four-on-one fast break down two points with 20 no no at that point it would have been like I yeah, think like, 50, 10, like 10 seconds, seconds left, left. Yeah. so it would have been kind of like that great frantic Jimmy Butler drive that we saw in the in the Raptors Sixers series and they could have gotten a three they could have I mean I think they probably would have gone for a two in the tie but instead Livingston gets the ball and then throws a quick pass to Andre Kudala who's basically debating like do I take this shot I think it was about five seconds left on the shot clock he ends up pulling it and makes the three with seven seconds left that ended it but for me it was more about the catch than yeah. the pass or the or the made shot because that's what prevented the fast break 
Yeah, and Livingston broke on the ball. You know, Kawhi is a, a guy when he gets his hand on it, you're it's game over. So he was able to to break to the ball quickly. Draymond had a quote about that play afterwards. He says we we all joke amongst ourselves with bad receivers and good receivers. I always call Kevin a bad receiver, and he's right about that. KD does not ever come to the ball, uh, and he calls Sean a bad receiver. Uh, most of this is probably on plays where they're posting up. I'm guessing, but uh, he said that Sean turned into a Megatron tonight for that pass, and it, and it was big for us um nick nurse uh, as uh, you'll recall their toronto is getting a billion offensive rebounds and finally danny green hit a three with 26.9 left so 2.9 second differential nick nurse was saying i look up there's 26.4 or something left that's a definite foul situation they could hold it all the way to the end throw it up there hit the rim and the horn's going to go off i've been in that situation before so usually under 28 if there's 28 or more you're going to play solid defense if it's 27.9 or under you're not he then went on to say that they're trying to foul and they had a couple of chances on drone he was making the signal to foul and curry they said they didn't want to foul him but they got a good trap on him and, and then curry threw that duck that you mentioned where livingston uh, made a great play to go get it back livingston was in for defense instead of quinn cook and nurse then said if they're going to take a shot and give you a chance i'll, I'll live with that one end up being taken and he's probably right i mean that now iguodala if he was going to get fouled or take that shot maybe you would say oh you should dribble in and, and try for a two-pointer because all you need is two points to get yourself up two possessions there and that's what's important uh rather than a three i mean a three doesn't help you that much in that situation with seven seconds left in the game as opposed to a two that'll put you up four or five there's not that big of a difference between those two at that point especially with only one timeout left for the raptors but i i thought that was really interesting and i i agree i my number would be a little bit lower than nurses i would say if you've got a three second differential or more rather than a four second like him i, I would try and play defense if you have the timeout left because it's really hard to take the shot exactly as the time expires and then have it hit the rim and the clock can continue instead of a shot clock violation occurring it's pretty difficult to time that as we saw uh, with Iguodala here so they were trying to foul and Draymond had it for a long time it, the Toronto just wasn't able to execute that well and it, it was a reminder of another challenge in that circumstance which is the combination of trying to double and not foul and then foul somebody else because your guys are just spread all around the floor and so Draymond had the ball but there wasn't really anybody in position from what I recall to foul him and so the accomplishing that double and theoretically let's say you bring somebody from elsewhere in the action well then you might be giving up a layup or something else like that and we saw you know Siakam on that really weird loose ball in game seven get get an opportunity there and so those sorts of things can happen so it, it's challenging I, I mean I think to me the Raptors did have opportunities to foul I, I thought they could have I thought they should have but I mean they still got a shot with I think it was about you know eight seconds left on the clock when when Iguodal released it and then he made it with seven to go so it wasn't as as disastrous or catastrophic as it could have been a few more notes here Steph Curry was 0 for his first five and as mentioned had to go to the locker room for an IV there's a report that he was under the weather but he scored 12 points in the last five minutes of the first half I thought that the Raptors fouling which was the case in game one as well but just their offense was so good it didn't matter the Raptors just fouled too much I mean I, I didn't see many plays that were called fouls in either direction that w- weren't fouls I mean there's one where uh, the one that Steph had at the end of the half where he 
did the harden to extend his arms and Siakam got called for what ended up being his third foul at that time that was a pretty clean strip that was one of the only ones I saw that I didn't think were was a foul um but overall I mean some of those over the backbreakers that they had I mean Draymond Green had six free throw attempts in the first half and he got him with a rip move and two over the backbreakers where he got fouled getting a defensive rebound you just the kind of fouls that you just cannot have when you're in the bonus and you're just giving Golden State free points well, they fouled Steph Curry on a three two like yeah, yeah the, the one it? that was the most ridiculous was the Lowry one because Lowry put his arm around Draymond Draymond probably would have fallen anyway and then that might have been a turnover or just yeah. an awkward Lowry pressure. had some really stupid fouls including the one he <laughs> fouled his out sixth on. foul was completely which, which was I mean him and pretty much every player does this it seems like so I'm not singling him out necessarily but to act like you the call was crazy and how could they have called it and then you see the replay and like he hits him on the shoulder two feet away from where the ball is <laughs> going for just a no hope steal and I think the players just do that so that like the fans who are watching or their coaches think like oh it might have been clean and I can't believe it because I just don't want to well that was like acknowledge the, how dumb of a play the it Blake was. Griffin missed was that a missed dunk or a missed layup where he acted like he'd been fouled when nobody was near him because that's better than just missing it uh well yeah but I want to talk about so that yeah. Lowry play I mean so the Raptors throughout this playoffs even though he you know he isn't necessarily the primary engine of their offense they just function so much better when he's on the floor he's capable shooter can can make good decisions and he commits his sixth foul on a real no chance play with three minutes and 52 seconds left now at that time the warriors were up were up eight and you know it it didn't look particularly great for the raptors and it's worth noting that you know the raptors they came back in this game but they didn't score from when kyle lowry fouled out they didn't score again until one minute and eight seconds remained when when Kawhi got the he got the and or not an and one he got fouled by DeMarcus Cousins and then got three free throws because of the Curry technical so they went almost three minutes without a made basket and if you think about how close this game ended having Lowry on the floor could have made a big difference yeah although he played 28 minutes tonight and you can make the argument that Van Vliet is giving them more than Lowry because Van Vliet is the guy that they're putting on Curry and Van Vliet played 38 minutes in this one and basically played the you know 19 straight minutes in both halves uh and he did have 17 points uh, but it took him 17 shooting possessions to get there including a couple of crazy finishes at the rim i don't know where he's found this finishing at the rim all of a sudden when he couldn't make a layup or even attempt a layup in the first three series so lowry's got to play a little bit better he was four for 11 tonight uh and team worse negative 17 pretty rare that you you will see that you recall that toronto was 15 of 23 in the last six seconds of the shot clock in game one and per john schumann they were three of 17 in the last six seconds of the shot clock in game two and generally you're not going to shoot well in the last six seconds of the shot clock and they made some pretty crazy shots uh, as you'll recall in the last six seconds like that van fleet banked in three and macaws three-pointer you know there are a few other ones so they were never going to shoot 15 to 23 again but they had many more problems this time around uh they need to come up with a better plan on these curry back screens i mean draymond got a dunk off that cyclone action when danny green 
Green wouldn't help off of Curry and maybe they need to just come to a decision that they're going to switch all Curry back screens or maybe just overall do more switching uh, because they've played it almost entirely straight up even to the point where with Kawhi on Draymond they're not switching the pick and roll with Steph and Draymond even at, at times although Draymond is awesome at setting a solid screen and then rolling to the rim and, and then having Steph hit him on the run because they set the screen so high a lot of times it doesn't matter if you switch if Draymond gets solid contact on the guy he's going to have inside position and be able to roll to the rim four on three anyway so switching it isn't necessarily a panacea but Kawhi had some uncharacteristic breakdowns again he did in game one too where uh one time he was guarding Draymond and just like looking at the weak side so Draymond's like all right you're not gonna guard me I'm just gonna go set a screen for Steph Curry to hit a three that was a, a, a three that actually got Curry going after his big struggles and then another time he just gives up a straight back cut to Clay Thompson in semi-transition well, it, to DeMarcus out of the and post. Draymond straight up drove by him once which was super oh, yeah. bizarre yeah that was another play where and Leonard didn't play as many minutes he played 43 in game one only 39 tonight and his game I mean he was negative 14 his passing game wasn't really working only three assists and the five that he had in game one a lot of them were kind of flaming bag type of passes that weren't really a ton of value added um and tonight two of nine from three so it's pretty good for the Warriors to hold him to only 11 two-point attempts and he did get of course 16 to 16 from the foul line so you know I thought he wasn't the reason that they lost offensively I think it was more some of the other guys uh, missing some pretty open shots and although Leonard did have a couple of really open ones that might have been able to change the game one off an offensive rebound with about four minutes left I think that could have got him within five so uh, Toronto definitely had their chances but you know Golden State had their chances to score during that run at the end uh, as well um I do think that Golden State's medical staff remember they changed up their training staff they let Chelsea Lane go to Atlanta presumably because they just offered her more money Travis Schlank was familiar with her and now they've got Rick Celebrini who worked with Steve Nash uh, for a while they still got Drew Yoder but I think every major player on the team now except for Draymond Green has suffered some kind of a muscle pull this season Steph Curry missed almost a month with a groin Iguodala has been dealing with this calf issue and maybe a hamstring Thompson although again this was kind of a more acute injury mechanism than just your normal you're kind of tired and therefore you pull something obviously the KD calf cousins had that blown quad that's too many injuries due to muscle pulls and that's something that I think you know sometimes it's just bad luck but those are the injuries that a good training staff in theory should be able to prevent you know sprained ankle you come down on someone's foot or you know a shoulder injury or a hand injury or something like that. medical staff not necessarily gonna be able to do anything about that but muscle pulls yeah that's uh, that's not fantastic and maybe again it's just bad luck maybe it's also that Kerr had to play these guys a lot of minutes in the Houston series but they had have had plenty of rest since uh the Portland series so you'd hope that they would be recovered so that's just something to watch here. I mean, to have another guy suffer a muscle injury, like that's to have an all five starters basically, except for Draymond, you know, that's not really acceptable. Um, anything else on this one? You talk uh, adjustments maybe uh, or anything else that you had? I think the Raptors should look more at switching, especially stuff involving Kawhi. I mean, it's it, as you said, it's not going to solve all of their problems, but especially it could stop some of the lapses that are just creating easy shots. And if teams that concede open looks to the Warriors, 
numbers. I mean, the Blazers were doing it in different ways because their, their help defense was just so bad that they were conceding him. But that can allow the Warriors to kind of stay in a game or that can help fuel a run. I think Toronto can cut some of that down. But again, I, th- I thought like, especially in the first half, they played they played solid defense overall. It was just that they missed some shots that would normally go in. So I don't, I don't think they have to do any wholesale changes except for one. And that is if Nick Nurse wants to play Fred Van Vliet that many minutes, start the damn guy. You know, it's... Well, or you got to or you got to find a chance to get him a short break when and do it when Curry is out of the game. No, but it, even then like even then you still I think you still start him because because the player that you want him guarding starts. Yeah. And granted Curry struggled to start this game. He, he missed his first five shots, all that, but I mean it it doesn't make sense if you trust Van Vliet more than Danny Green and Van Vliet's the guy that you're putting on Steph Curry, start him. Yeah. Um you know, I think some of the com- communication issues defensively were a problem and maybe more switching helps that but you've got Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka who you know Ibaka was successful at times switching onto Curry in that series three years ago uh, and Clay Thompson but it, he's a little bit slower now and it's not something that, that they've done and Marcus Gasol isn't going to switch either now they do have him getting out on the floor in situations where a man guarding Clay or Steph gets screened off and that's leading to a double team and leading to some of these uh, attacks uh, of the rim and it's tough even with this group uh, and I thought Siakam didn't have as good of a defensive game Kawhi as a help guy didn't have as good of a defensive game tonight so they can do more on the backside than they have but if you're going to play Gasol it's hard to do much switching and even if you're going to play Ibaka and maybe it would have been nice to get OG Ananobi a few minutes in this game he was active but he was kind of not really slated to play just to see and maybe try to play Siakam at center just to see what that looks like especially maybe in the first half with your nice 10 point lead for a lot of that first half and the second half they're down so it wasn't really time to experiment necessarily but just to get your feet wet get a look at that understand that it might be something you do have that in your pocket might be nice now they may also say well they've got demarcus cousins now who's going to probably play 30 minutes the rest of the series if looney can't go and so can we switch with demarcus out there uh, you know we'll see they i mean the warriors really only posted cousins up once uh, to score they did got him in the ball in the post a lot for passing purposes which he was awesome at demarcus also made some pretty nice plays just off the dribble i thought tonight was the best he's looked off the dribble in a warrior's uniform actually which because that part of his game when he first came back from the achilles i thought really was not there at all um but he had a great drive where he avoided a charge like it was it was really outstanding work from him so yeah i mean this may just be a series where we're gonna see big men and we're gonna see more conventional defense but at the very least they got to deal with these curves back screen like you can't just give up a backdoor layup every single time Steph Curry sets a back screen like you gotta either help switch deal with it somehow but whatever you're doing on Steph giving up a dunk is worse than that and Curry ended this game the leader on both teams in screen assists with four yeah and all I think I all four of those were either dunks or or layups yes and it's easier to get a screen assist on the ball because you're running a bunch of pick and rolls. A, a screen assist for a guard off the ball is uh, is really, that speaks to uh, his incredible gravity. That, that's a, a great stat there. Um, what the hell is Golden State, who are they going to start if Clay can't go in game three? I, I think they're not going to bring KD back now for game three. Agreed. I think having gotten this one, uh, you know, Toronto's thinking, hey, all we got to do is get a split in Golden State. To me, I think, you know, the clock, now with Clay out, maybe it's a little different, but the clock is is ticking on demarcus getting back in shape being able to play more minutes the clock is ticking on kd coming back so i think getting a split in golden state maybe that's not good enough maybe they need to win both of those games to win this series 
series because when KD comes back, it, things could get a lot more difficult. But uh, anything more you'd like to see from Toronto on the offensive end? I think that's where they lost this game, other than just you know making some of these open shots. A, a basic thing that just kept on. I, I was I was periodically going insane on this on the NBA cast when Alfonso McKinney is guarding Kawhi Leonard. You do not need to do anything fancy. Just have Kawhi Leonard attack Alfonso McKinney. Kawhi Leonard is totally fine doing that. He had a play where he went after Quinn yeah. Cook. And, yeah, you don't need to set a screen. No, you at, shouldn't at set a screen. And, and you have what you want. Into the action. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah. then the, put him on the wing and let him go to work. And like there were times the Warriors they ended up doing a nice trap with Bogut and and Draymond Lee. And that was in the fourth quarter. Actually, had the Raptors burn their second to last timeout. And I just think you're, you when you when you have a win, just take the win and 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 move forward with it. And it's the second series in a row that that's happened with Alfonso McKinney. But yeah, you don't need to get too cute. Just just take it even. I'd like to see Pascal Siakam with the ball more. Yes. On that dribble pitch action, because the problem is he now you know he didn't hit those three pointers right away. He was hanging out in the dunker spot a lot, and he had a, a little bit of success kind of crossing under the under the basket on pick and rolls. He, he got a nice uh, floater off of that in game one at one point. But he's being guarded by a good help defender, and he's not just this ridiculous crush and alley oop on your head kind of guy. He did have one awesome one in transition, but just coming from a dead stop, you know, Clint Capella style, he's not quite at that level. So now he's coming up the spacing in pick and roll. And so I think either put him in the corner and hope that he can hit some shots. And if he can't do that, give him the ball and let it, you know, do a four or five pick and roll and see how that goes. Especially, I think, if Bogut is in the game or Cousins as well, try to get them out on the floor and, and attack there. And then you've got, if you've got Kawhi off the ball, you've got pretty good spacing for that play. Whereas if Siakam is off the ball, he's just under the basket and kind of messing things up a, a little bit, it seemed like. So, and I think also just going to a more spacing oriented group at the end of the third quarter when Kawhi can go at McKinney is something that they should really go for and Steve Kerr on the other hand if Clay Thompson can play he might consider trying to leave one of Thompson or Iguodala on the floor during at all times if you can do it that would mess with his regular rotation but to have one of those guys so McKinney doesn't have to guard Kawhi as much or maybe you go with Draymond guarding Kawhi in those minutes and Draymond was good on Kawhi but that limits his impact as a help defender but maybe you get away with it there with that second group my wife and I were able to actually get away for the first time in a while just for one night on Friday night but there's always a small part of me that doesn't like going on vacation because my mattress is never as comfortable as my Helix Sleep mattress. And that makes perfect sense. I go to a hotel. I'm just on whatever mattress they decide to give me. My Helix Sleep mattress is customized to my specific height, weight, and sleep preferences. I'm having the best sleep of my life. You should try it too at an unbeatable price. The way it works is you go to helixsleep.com. You fill out their two-minute sleep quiz and they design your custom mattress. And they can even customize each side for you and your partner. They also now have the Helix Pillow, which is fully adjustable for back sleepers, side sleepers, stomach sleepers. You want a different height and firmness of pillow for all those. Now you can adjust your pillow to provide that. The way to get started with them is at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Go there right now and you can get up to $125 towards your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. $125 towards your mattress order, depending on, on what kind you get. It's up to $125 towards your mattress order, to be clear. helixsleep.com slash 
slash capspace. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. So we got a bit of news that, that is piled up here. Let's start with some of these injuries, which are now afflicting the top of the draft. Jean Morant is going to have a small procedure on his knee, his right knee more specifically. It is a minor knee surgery to remove a loose body. That's going to happen on Monday. Very short timeline, three to four weeks, uh, which for him to be fully recovered. Seems unlikely, however, that he will play summer league considering we're already in June and, and he's about a month away. So if he just had surgery now, it would certainly be unwise to rush him back for summer league, whichever team drafts him. And there's talk now that perhaps there are at least factions of Memphis's front office that are not so locked in on him at number two, based on uh, what we've seen in the scouting reports. I would be locked in on him a lot more than RJ Barrett. Yeah, so but far. Some, of, some of that could also be gamesmanship. Sure. If let's say another team is more interested in RJ, both than we are and than Jaw, then you want that you want to have to say, hey, if you want that player, you come through us really the only the only time to say we're taking this guy is if you just don't want to get those calls anymore and so like for example the pelicans with zion i would assume that they could kind of go in that direction hey man like we're not going to trade him we're taking him all that sort of stuff and yeah and as you said being fully recovered in three to four weeks that could theoretically mean that he would be back for summer league but it would be unwise it's just too early and he can still be with whatever team drafts him just not playing in games and all that sort of stuff building camaraderie and all that and that timeline is actually more favorable than Cam Reddish. So Reddish is undergoing a procedure for what is now called a core muscle injury, what used to be called a sports hernia. The good news is that per Jeff Stotts, these these repairs have a, a high success rate, which is very good. He doesn't expect that it will be an issue for Reddish moving forward. The downside is that Shamstrania gave it a six-week timetable, and so a six-week timetable, you're almost definitely out for Summer League. And how this affects his draft stock, I, I think most notably, it's not the the absence you know for summer league or anything like that it's that he can't do any further workouts and try to impress teams with this goal on the floor so we'll see how that affects you know just not being out there how that affects his standing relative to some of these other players in that mix where he is yeah and reddish had very good numbers as kevin pelton has written in the uibl but really struggled at duke and perhaps this is an explanation for that maybe we can talk a little bit more about that once we dig into the film on him but interesting now that between garland who missed most of the year reddish morant got a lot of top prospects getting over some injury issues interesting news from our buddy jared weiss who i'm only about a month away from collecting a steak dinner from based on Jason Tatum's shooting percentages this year but certainly a well-known friend of the program he went to Tokyo I'll have to ask him about how that trip ended up materializing to have lunch with Kemba Walker and uh Weiss characterized it as his future crystallizing when he qualified for the Supermax and he said Charlotte's definitely my first priority that's where I've been for eight years and that's all I know and, and I recommend reading the entire article Walker with some illuminating quotes he discussed the importance of getting that fifth year at his age which is 29 this offseason uh, multiple times well can i use my favorite quote from that yes i like this so it's it's it he says the fifth year is important about six times during the piece but the last one i thought was interesting he's like but yeah the fifth year is important i'm not gonna lie to you about that the fifth year is important i'll be what 33 by then and that's something you and i talk about a lot about how the the extra years matter significantly more for older free agents than they do for 
younger ones. So for example, when Utah offered Gordon Hayward the fifth year, it didn't matter as much to him at that point, or let's say with Anthony Davis and depending on what happens there, because he's younger. And so you're not thinking, oh man, when I'm 30, 31, I'm not going to be able to make X amount of money. And for Kemba Walker, he can see that that might not necessarily be the case. And so it's smart for him if that is what he wants to prioritize or at least make it a serious consideration. It's wise for him to do so. Yeah, I I laud his honesty and I'm in complete agree with with him that that should matter, especially as a shorter point guard, especially as more of a fringe all NBA guy rather than someone who's making first team, second team every year. Uh, In Houston, Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets have ended extension talks. They, when it came out that the Rockets offered him some sort of a performance based extension idea, I thought to myself, yeah, Warren Legary, that's not the kind of thing that that he's normally going to go for. And then Legary pushed back on Tillman Fertitta's characterization of what the offer actually was, saying that the extension, which would have been for $5 million in theory, with some performance based escalators if they made it further into the playoffs, he said, no, actually, it would only be guaranteed for $2.5 million unless he made the playoffs and was coaching the team at the end of the year. And Daryl Morey then confirmed Warren Legary's description of the offer, but otherwise declined to comment about the negotiation. So I guess I'm guessing for Tidda just kind of whether he decided to obfuscate the facts a little bit to make his offer look better for PR purposes or whether he just didn't really remember it that well and decided to just shoot from the hip and discussing it with the media. Neither of those is a good thing. Tillman for Tidda saying dumb stuff is uh, becoming rather common here. What did you make of the Clippers being fined for tampering with Doc Rivers going on ESPN's airwave and talking about how Kawhi was looking like Michael Jordan. It serves as a reminder of how the NBA does not really have consistent standards here, especially because Doc Rivers at this point in his career is no longer a front office figure. You know, if this was Doc Rivers when he was Rock Divers, yes, huge, huge story. Then it gets closer to the Magic Johnson, Paul George stuff on Kimmel. But Doc Rivers is not, I mean, maybe he has a voice in it just like many other coaches do, but he's not a decision maker in that capacity. And I'm concerned that basically there's this idea of like, you know, like good cases make bad law and so there's a lot of context here Sam Amick I think has probably done he's done a great job I, I believe Bontemps has done some on this as well that the, the Clippers have done a little bit more overt of a pursuit of, of Kawhi than teams have done in the past you know like having scouts at at Raptors home games and all that kind of stuff and so I'm guessing the league considered some of that context when I'm not totally sure that's that you know that that produces a good standard because now you know you the idea is that the league would want coaches especially if they have no front office power to be able to be candid and he was asked about it and he was doing a playoff broadcast and so i mean if if coaches or their organizations don't want to get fined we might see fewer of them doing these sorts of broadcasts yeah and also uh, worth noting that coaches get asked about opposing players in scrums uh, their normal media availability throughout the regular constantly yeah basically every single time oh hey what do you think of how Kemba walker has been playing or or something like that so i think the whole tampering thing is just so dumb like okay players can't tamper coaches can say nice things about him in a normal media availability but this isn't a normal media availability he went on espn uh, of his own volition and was asked about it and his praise was too effusive and uh supposedly the raptors have complained to the league multiple times about the clippers tampering with Kawhi leonard and maybe this was just things adding up ultimately but certainly we're at the point now where no one seems to really know what tampering is 
Dan Gilbert had comments a couple of weeks ago that our buddy Feldman was sure was going to be tampering, and we haven't heard anything about that. Where Gilbert's just like, "Oh yeah, he's not going to resign him. Kyrie Irving's not going to resign in Boston. <laughs> we made a great trade because he's not going to resign there. It, it just, it, yeah, you made a great trade. Other than you know the year that you could have had Kyrie Irving and LeBron James together uh, for longer, even though Kyrie did threaten to get that knee surgery. Nonetheless. I think the teams that whine about tampering are crybabies. Who cares if someone is trying to sign your player? And, and does the overt stuff even matter? You know, like well, it, well, well here, here's actually here. I, I've got it. I've got it. Like, there's. It's not even about. Oh, this is going to make Kawhi Leonard going to be more likely to sign here. You know that they're so concerned about that. Like Kawhi Leonard's going to make whatever decision he's going to. Kawhi Leonard isn't going to decide to sign with the Clippers because Doc Rivers said he's really good on ESPN. It's all about just managing the public statements so that raptors fans don't get pissed off so it's not a distraction for raptors fans or pelicans fans or whoever so that the storyline doesn't become about the guy leaving so you can still concentrate on the season like that's the reason for all of this is managing the pr of it it's not because oh now Kawhi's going to sign here because doc Rivers said this like nobody thinks that that's true so and, and that would be annoying certainly if you're a raptors fan have to listen to it if there were just no barriers to being like oh yeah we're definitely going to sign Kawhi Leonard or the Hawks saying it you remember years ago that they're going to focus on Chris Paul and Dwight Howard in a letter to season ticket holders that kind of stuff is a little bit annoying because you want to be able to root for the team and there's already this idea that you know stars are always going to leave and so that part of it I understand but it's really it's more about just managing the PR of it than it is that thinking the tampering is going to make a difference in where the guy ends up Anything else on that, or should we talk a little uh, Utah Jazz here? Let's go to the Jazz, and their circumstance is fascinating because they have more flexibility, I think, than than some might understand, but that flexibility could evaporate quickly depending on what kind of track Dennis Lindsay wants to take. To put a little further context on it, the Jazz only have, if you count the 23rd pick, which they have, they only have about $65 million in fully guaranteed salaries for next year. As a point of reference, the projected salary cap is 109 so that's a pretty big difference however that 65 million doesn't count a couple of big things so the first one is Derek Favors Derek Favors has a fully non-guaranteed 16.9 million the decision date there is reportedly July 6th Ricky Rubio Tabo Cephalosha Ekpe Udo all unrestricted free agents and then Kyle Korver partially guaranteed for 3.4 million would be fully guaranteed at 7.5 so depending on who they want to keep who they want to dump that money could could go away very quickly yeah and then they've also uh, have ricky rubio as their main free agent the other ones tabo cephalosha epe Udo, not a, a major part of what they're going to do going forward they're not worried about keeping those cap holds on the books but perhaps rubio with his 22 million dollar cap hold probably wouldn't take that much in terms of annual value to sign him to a new deal you'd think they probably want to upgrade at that position mike conley certainly has been floated as a possibility there so they do have a, a lot of different directions that they can go other than point guard they don't really have any huge areas to upgrade and i'm also not sure that Derek favors and kyle corver with their non-guarantees if you just open up that space by letting those guys go corver is 3.4 million guaranteed his guarantee date is july 7th uh, out of his 7.5 million corver is also someone if they wanted to waive him they could probably just trade him instead uh and that would have some complications in terms of that maybe having to guarantee the salary or not or you could trade it to a team with cap space and you wouldn't have to worry about that but or maybe they could amend 
amend yeah. and move back the guarantee date like a week or something. Yeah. So, and then you, you look at the long-term planning and for 2021, 2020, summer of 2020, we should say, they've got Rudy Gobert, Joe Ingles, Dante Exum, Donovan Mitchell, and a few other small rookie contracts on the books and could have as much as 50 million in space that year. So the question becomes, do you want to eat into that with long-term contracts? Would you think that by waiving favors and waiving Corver, you could get more bang for your buck this year than you could next year when, as noted, the free agent class is pretty crappy? Would you consider bringing, guaranteeing favors and guaranteeing Corver and then trying to bring back Rubio on a really big balloon payment if, say, the, a potential trade for Conley doesn't work out? and then try to really reset everything in 2020 and still of course have the option of bringing all those guys back too just to get a look at at what it looks like if maybe the Warriors break up a little bit and and you don't have to play Houston in the first round and maybe you do a lot better or maybe Donovan Mitchell takes enough of a step forward that you look much better in the playoffs next year so they do have a lot of options available to them and if they want to keep this team together other than Rubio they really have the ability to do so and let's say they do guarantee favors in Corver, then they would have 16 or 17.6 million dollars to work with to bring in a, another point guard and maybe a, a bench score i, I kind of see those as a, their biggest needs if they want to go the free agent route rather than bringing back rubio what does it look like in terms of some of their point guard options that might be available on the market it's not a particularly great year for players in that salary range i mean we fully expect Kyrie kemba to be well over over that range so then you're looking more at darren collison Patrick Beverly, and I wouldn't say either of those guys is necessarily worth that kind of money, but it's just once you take the step down from from Kemba and Kyrie, then you get into that range. And it, and it would be risky for Utah to go after a restricted free agent, let's say like Malcolm Brogdon. Brogdon's combo guard bona fides could actually work out reasonably well with Donovan Mitchell, depending on what role they want Mitchell to have. But a restricted free agent, you basically have to overpay them to get them, especially considering Milwaukee's situation. And Brogdon is also 26, so he's older than a lot of restricted free agents. And then, yeah, the the rest of the point guard class is pretty uninspiring and that's what leads me to another kind of compelling question with the jazz which is in the long term what do they see as as donovan mitchell's ideal role because maybe you could slide to somebody who's more of an off guard maybe a combo guard type of player it's not that that opens up any particularly superior options for this year but moving forward you know i think i think just having that flexibility could be useful yeah if you want to i think if you want to play mitchell a point guard the problem is that he's just not a good enough passer and creator I think to you're going to need someone else who can handle the ball or at the very least be a really good score on the wing if you're going to play him at point guard Joe Ingles having him be the main pick and roll guy in the playoffs doesn't really work that well also just you could still play Mitchell at point guard some if you have another point guard that you can throw out there to run the office when when he is sitting and then Mitchell can play point guard when uh, the point guard sits but there is something to be said for the idea that there isn't really anything that sexy in the point guard market this year rubio at 28 giving him a long contract doesn't seem like a great idea now will rubio have any other offers other than the mid-level exception elsewhere uh maybe not you know that's uh and for a lot of these teams that need point guards they need someone who's a little bit more dynamic as a scorer perhaps you know the team like the magic comes to mind there so maybe they could bring back rubio uh, on a relatively
relatively cheap deal that might be even less than the 15 million or so average annual value he had on his previous contract that rookie extension he signed with the wolves and patrick beverly would probably be a nice fit here too but at that point you know he's playing more of an off-ball role shooter and so maybe you then are better off going on the wing and you, you might have a few more options for guys on the wing especially because i think with someone like a jj reddick or terrence ross those are really probably the, the only guys I, I don't see them wanting to bring back Rodney Hood that's for sure uh, or Hood wanting to go back there but because you have Rudy Gobert back there you can get away with some worse defenders on the wing than maybe you can uh, on some other teams so maybe that would be a thought as you go in the direction of, of more of a fill it up guy at the two they really need some knockdown shooter and, and one who's got some two-way ability which uh, Kyle Korver doesn't and obviously he was dealing with the knee injury to it in that Houston series and got relentlessly attacked they got a lot of optionality but i'm not that pleased with any of their options i'll say in free agency that are realistic i agree with that and a compounding factor for the jazz looking more at the long term is is this the age component so donovan mitchell next year will be his age 23 season it will be rudy gobert's age 27 season and a lot of the holdover talent they have jay crowder joe ingles those guys are late 20s early 30s and so Lindsay, i mean you don't have to have all your guys the same age or anything silly like that but it is worth thinking about that Ingles and and Crowder beyond the fact that they'll be free agents in a couple years that they don't necessarily sync up with kind of a a a more long-term identity around Gobert around Donovan Mitchell so they could also use some of those resources to look at forwards maybe somebody who can handle the ball a little bit a a defensive player and again the flexibility of having guys that can play in a in a more kind of straightforward defensive system because of Gobert's excellence it opens the door but again forwards are extremely scarce and it just because you that would be an interesting way to use your money does not mean there are people that are worth that money this year or next year another option they could go to as well would be stretch four they've long been linked to Nikola Miritich there's the thought that they would trade for him and then the Pelicans ended up getting him a year ago now Miritich uh, seems unlikely to be back in Milwaukee Utah could offer him the ability to step in in pretty much a, a starting role even if they hold on to favors and they've always started favors at the four and part of that has been to assuage his ego if he's not going to be closing games but maybe if they bring Miritich in and they do guarantee favors they could finally move him to the bench they could look to trade him or perhaps they just totally let favors go and because favors guarantee date is so late you could at least have a good idea of oh well, maybe we could get Miritich and we could bring back Rubio or or get Miritich and another decent point guard solution or 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 uh, someone who can fill it up a little bit more on the wing. Another interesting one to me, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, I think would be a pretty nice fit with what they're trying to do there. A little bit more off the dribble ability, reliable deep shooting. The Jazz are a team that has, however, usually tried to avoid bad contracts. And I think whatever at 30, whatever contract Bogdanovich gets uh, is going to be a, a bad one. And they, they've still got Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell as part of this core, and so they may not want to be so encumbered going into the future and Miritich is someone they might see as undervalued or that fits particularly well with what they're doing because they've got Gobert behind him so his defensive limitations don't matter as much and they could just if they wanted to start Mitchell at the one and bring in Miritich then you could just have a more traditional backup point guard that might cost you know in the five million range you could go the the Ish Smith the Jeremy Lin type of route anything else you want to say about potential free agent targets here or or should we talk about this looming specter of a potential Conley trade one other thing I want to bring up 
talked about the limited people on kind of the forward range. Depending on what flexibility the Jazz have, I could see them being an interesting bidder for some of the restricted guys that aren't really high end. You know, like I don't think Brogdon's realistic, but let's say like Jordan Bell. If they have a couple million, you could roll roll after him. They don't really, especially if Favors, you know, is on a short term contract or not going to be around. That could be a value deal because the war, depending on what the Warriors' willingness is, I I would be very interested as in Maxi Kleba for them. You could go in a couple. You know, he could even do the play some four, play some backup five. I've brought up yeah. this idea with Kleba and the Nets as well that he could kind of bridge the gap and fill two different roles. Uh, but my suspicion on Kleba is something is going to be announced as agreed to on July 1st between him and Dallas. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me at all. And then also they could be a a worthwhile destination for either of the Morris twins because they have, they have minutes that could potentially be useful and a role on a good team. It's possible. Those guys don't fit in quite as well to the culture element in Utah. That would be fair. Sure. Um, You know, and certainly if they're going a little bit lower range, someone like Wayne Ellington is someone that they could look at. Even someone like Gerald Green, even, even at 33 is someone I think could really help them off the bench. I mean, they just need s- someone who can come in and be guarded on the perimeter and be a, a bomber that y- you can't leave. I, I think that's a-, a major priority for them. Someone like Seth Curry could be an interesting one also, uh, especially if they move on from Rubio, where he could play some backup point guard, maybe get some minutes with the starters as well to provide reliable shooting. Let's talk about Con- Conley now. Dennis Lindsay had some quotes that surprised me, saying essentially that Memphis did not negotiating good faith and that they publicize some of the details of the offer i'm guessing that that is not the deposed memphis regime it's probably the guys who are sticking around and so maybe there's some bad blood there but utah is also widely expected to re-engage on the conley trade front this summer conley to refresh your memory do 32.5 million this season and then has an eto which is basically for our purposes the same as a player option for 34.5 million next year and he is 31 years old as of now coming off close to a career year frankly um so you can expect some performance decline from him he stayed healthy most of the year which he's had these various achilles issues before then so tough to say that he's a guarantee to make it through the whole year for a player like this you know i I had him as almost an all nba player last year but also considering the age and the contract something along the lines of one first round pick would normally seem adequate but when you consider the amount of cap space around the league the dearth of other point guard options perhaps paying a little bit more for Conley becomes attractive and and it seems like they're going to have at least Indiana and uh, maybe Detroit some other suitors and the Utah is the problem that they're pretty good and so their future draft picks in the 20s may not be that appealing so if you're you know it's draft time and you're looking to make a trade for Dennis Lindsay what are you thinking your offer is to the Memphis Grizzlies? The Jazz depending on how they structure things and assuming they they brought in Conley, they would lose Rubio's cap hold. One benefit that they could give that a lot, that some other teams could not is just straight up savings for Memphis, both in 1920 and 2021. That helps. I mean, I don't think yeah. they're... Indiana could probably do that too. Yeah, probably, depending on depending on what the structure was. Indiana doesn't have a ton of matching salary, which I think is something, theoretically, that like they could use cap space. I would, you know, first round pick, they're 23rd, I think, that, and, and I could see that being, depending on health, they'd be similar the fall 
following year. I would actually, if I were Memphis, look more for the maybe to see if you could get the 2020 pick as opposed to 2019, just because there's a chance they'll be worse. Maybe you have to lottery protect it or something like that. And the problem for for Utah is that they don't really have a ton of sweeteners. It's very possible that Dante Exum was a sticking point last time. I talked about how I was how if that was the case from Utah's perspective, I would be very critical. I think that he has a negative value contract at this point, nine point yeah. six million. That, that seems clear. I mean, it's with the partially torn patellar tendon. I mean, yeah, and nine point six million each of the next injury. two years. That's a lot of money for a player who, even when healthy, he's intriguing, but doesn't really do. He's dynamic, but not like a, a guy who seems like a pick and roll maestro or anything yeah. like that. Interesting <clears> fit next to Mitchell, though. And and so then their other sweeteners aren't really that inspiring. Grayson Allen, T- Tony Bradley, who I would say is a negative value contract. I, I would knowing what we know right now, like the limited amount that we know because he hasn't played much in the NBA, I would be declining his fourth year team option. I would have declined his third year one as well. And then, you know, like Howell Neto and and then I really like Royce O'Neal. I probably, you know, if you had to include him to make the difference and not give up first, maybe you do it. But I really like Royce. I think. Well, well, I think I, I think a first is your starting point. Yes. So yeah. No, what I'm talking about is adding on top of that. First. Yeah. 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 Is yeah. Instead of, and maybe instead of a second first, you add in other players, but their other players aren't particularly great. And yeah, well, I, I think Royce O'Neal has some value. Oh, oh absolutely. I, I wouldn't minimum. I wouldn't be wanting to trade Royce O'Neal because I like Royce O'Neal. I, mean, I, I think Royce O'Neal is about equivalent value of a, of a first round pick. Now, he's not a future superstar. And maybe part of the reason that you want picks if you're in a rebuilding mode is that you at least have the slight chance the of getting lottery ticket idea. Outside. But for O'Neal, making the minimum this year and then a restricted free agent after that, you know, I think that that is a, a pretty valuable player. Uh, and so, I don't know, I, I, is O'Neal and a first and then you know, probably some amount of salary matching? Maybe Exum just has to be in it just to, to match some salary favors. Maybe he's in it if they guarantee his contract to, and then trade him. That's uh, Favors is a really good player, though. Like, that's that really hurts them to have one of the best backup centers in the league and someone who can play a little power forward, just not on the team anymore. And then that's a lot of value as well. Memphis wouldn't have much interest in him, I would imagine, with Jaron Jackson and Valanchunas in the fold. But, you know, Favors could maybe be flipped in a, a as part of a three-way trade or, or at the trade deadline or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, a first-rounder and, and Royce O'Neal, I'm not... I, and if I have to give up favors too, that's a lot. I don't know that you're a better team because O'Neal provides critical wing depth for for them and could be a part of their team going forward as a restricted free agent. They could probably get them a pretty cheap deal after this. I don't know that that would make them better, favor, giving up favors and O'Neal for Conley. Well, and, and on top yeah. of that, they also wouldn't have a ton of salary flexibility to add around those guys because Conley makes that $32.5 million. So even if you replace Rubio favors with Conley, then you're about even. Then if you add in, you know, depending on what happens with their non-guarantees and what happens with Exum being included or not included. But you're not, either way, they're not going to have that much money left to spend unless they include more guys as contract filler. Yeah, maybe you could guarantee Kyle Korver and Dante Exum and then throw in O'Neal and some of your other cheaper guys and get up to enough salary matching, still offer Memphis from savings and you can take Conley into cap space and give up the first round pick as well. Maybe if you can not have to give up favors also and favors is arguably a better role man even then Gobert is he'd be a, a great partner for Conley then maybe it starts to get a little bit more palatable as well but it's it, it's so interesting of given what Conley is making where he is in the NBA right now but then that there could also be other suitors
leaders for him also there's the question of whether memphis is going to draft morant or not if they go with rj barrett which i I agree with you is probably a smoke screen and i i think they'd be very foolish to not draft morant but if they draft rj barrett then there's a thought of oh well maybe we'll just keep this guy instead uh especially with the pick that they owe to the Celtics. we'll talk more about a conley trade from memphis's perspective when we do their offseason preview but i you know i don't see utah being able to put together an overwhelming offer because if they do i think it just makes them worse and while there are some guys on this team that are getting a little bit older that are pretty good values that won't be on the team anymore going forward and you've got to kind of strip down around gobert and mitchell and rebuild the team at some point it doesn't strike me as a team that's like okay our window is the next year or two we got to get conley now right and, um, that, and that ties yeah. back with the age thing that i was talking about before of how gobert and mitchell are significantly younger than a lot of the rest of their team and so identifying are we you know you and you don't have to be win now win later binary choice it doesn't have to be that way but conley being older than basically all of those guys really does affect that direction and it is true though that having full bird rights on him at the end of this could be useful you know if it, maybe you can you probably still have to pay him fair market value but maybe his value is dropped enough that they can use that but again then if they have conley gobert and mitchell on their books by that point you know that that might be the same year gobert gets gets his new contract if, if assuming conley picks up his or you know does not ha- ha- plays under his eto so then the jazz are pretty much locked in that's about what their team is going to be for better or for worse yeah and maybe the more i think about it with gobert perhaps there is more urgency to win now he's going to turn 27 on june 26th and he's yep. got two more years under contract but then he's going to be eligible for the oh Supermax god next summer and gobert while he works hard he keeps himself in great condition and height usually ages well mobility and athleticism doesn't as much i don't expect him to continue to be a defensive player of the year type force much beyond maybe 29 or 30 and that's of course what a lot of his value is built on so maybe you do need to take more advantage of gobert's prime these next two or three years the more i think about it mitchell obviously is still a bit of a tabula rasa but for gobert being this otherworldly defense force maybe you do need to be more aggressive if you're dennis Lindsay and and break into the coffers with so two first round picks and potentially protect them pretty heavily you know okc style protection on them and maybe that's what gets you there so and if conley flames out due to injury or just isn't as effective then you're protected there in terms of the amount that you gave up for him if you're not actually in the an elite team so yeah maybe maybe it is worth it to push more chips in that historically has not been utah's way but you know i I, perhaps the clock is ticking more on gobert than it would first appear so i I don't i don't want to talk extended about this but another kind of thing to note is i like drew holiday as a long-term fit much more i don't know that he's going to be on the market this year but it could be another consideration for being a little slow playing this a little bit more because if holiday is on the market either at the trade deadline or in the 2020 offseason he's much younger has you know has his own injury history but that's getting further in the rear view thankfully and i like his fit with with mitchell a lot as well so maybe you could maybe more options open up and something else that the jazz we talked about with conley they could be interested this year maybe next year is yeah the free agent crop next year is awful but they could try to trade for talented players who are under contract and that might be a way to kind of bridge the gap get better without having to overpay free agent yeah a couple more housekeeping things before we wrap up here how Neto, George Yang, and Royce O'Neal all with non-guarantees. Neto's is pretty early, July 6th, but for $2.2 million, 
I would pick that up if I were them. I think as a third point guard, he's been very effective. I think he can even be a solid backup at times during the regular season. The only questions with him are in the playoffs, can he really be effective, especially going against Houston where he's just too undersized? And then also experiencing a lot of injury issues and relying on him as your only backup point guard when he's getting hurt all the time. We've mentioned before how important it is to have a reliable in addition to a quality solution at that position. So I still, even if he's going to be the third point guard, I would try to keep him around at that number. Nyang, to me, showed a lot more than I expected when they gave him a fully guaranteed contract this year. And he's non-guaranteed both this year and next year and has shown some shooting ability. Doesn't cost them too much in terms of cap space to keep these guys on the books. And especially if they go the route of just bringing back Rubio, there's no reason not to bring these guys back. And then we mentioned, of course, Corver and Favors already on the non-guaranteed portion of the ledger as well. Uh, anything else to talk about before we take off here? Yeah, I'll, I'll plug our Patreon mailbag, which we did. Um, that we that was released on Saturday evening. A lot of really interesting conversations, including where we would sign as a free agent, ranking the Warriors' playoff yeah. opponents. If, well, where we would sign if we were an elite wing free agent rather than, you know, us. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And, and and then a lot of different things, you know, our, our feelings on the Supermax and kind of some CBA stuff. We always get that. And then ranking the Warriors' opponents and, and a lot of stuff. And it's also fun because, and the origins of the podcast and how it's changed from the original vision, all that kind of stuff. So patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. You can support it there. Also, you can check out my Twitter feed and The Athletic. I'm going to have some pieces coming out soon. I think I have three that are going to be going through the editorial process over the next few days. So I don't know what's going up when, but that's why you keep an eye on it. All right. We will talk to you all tomorrow night. Till then.